I'm Dr. Christopher Edwards, and this is FarmCast. FarmCast comes to you from the University of Arizona, Arken Quake College of Pharmacy. All right, as we continue our journey discussing opioids, we've got Dr. Melody Glenn with us again here today uh, to talk this time about the history of medications used for opioid use disorder. Uh, similar to naloxone, these have a long and sordid past, and uh, we're, again, lucky enough to have Dr. Glenn here to share her expertise with us um, today. So welcome back, Dr. Glenn. Good to see you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Of course. Uh, the last one was so much fun. Uh, I can't imagine uh, talking to anybody else about, about the history <laughs> of uh, opioids for medication use disorder, or sorry, medications for opioid use disorder. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I think that, you know, anybody practicing in the current environment is familiar with methadone, buprenorphine, um, and maybe, you know, some of the legal challenges around prescribing these things. Um, I'm curious to know how we got to the current state of affairs. Um, I mean, I, I know in the last episode, we talked a little bit about the history of methadone, uh, probably being figured out by Nazi scientists, which is uh, definitely a sordid start. Um, but yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious to know about how, you know, methadone uh, ended up in the U.S., um, started to be used for, um, you know, opioid use disorder and, and how it became such a tricky drug to uh, prescribe to folks. So um, yeah, turn it over to you, wherever you want to cool. start with that. This is my passion. So I could talk about this for a long time. So I'm very excited. Excellent. Um, and I guess we should start back in the early 1900s because that's when it became more complex. Hmm. Yes. So this is when our regulatory framework that's still with us today began, um, even though methadone wasn't around at this point. So our first opioid epidemic was in the late 1800s. You know, back then you could buy it over the counter pretty easily and lots of over the counter. Even heroin, drugs. right? Yeah, heroin, cocaine. Yeah. You didn't always know that's what you were getting. It wasn't, medications didn't have to say what was in them until the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. Hmm. So you might just be buying like a soothing syrup or a salve and it includes morphine in it. Hmm. So that was the first epidemic people were using. We didn't really know how much of the country was using because nothing was regulated, but it's estimated that it was a fairly high number of people were using. Hmm. There started to be some change around this. Upton Sinclair published his book, The Farm, about the meatpacking industry, which you may say, how is that related? But it was a book sort of about exposing the harms that come from a lack of regulation and you know, there, he had stories in his novel of, of workers at these meatpacking plants getting trapped in a tub of lard and their body dissolving and the lard that's being shipped out to the public includes this dead person's body, basically. Oh, no. Oh, um, that is tragic on so many levels. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I was reading that while I was eating. I was like, I had to just stop. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, the FDA probably keeps dead bodies out of, uh, out of our food today. Hopefully. Yeah. And so that's when they decided, hey, maybe the federal government should get involved in this. Maybe we should do something to regulate. And so before that, they didn't think that that was the federal government's role. And so the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed in 1906, which started to say, hey, we need to regulate pharmaceuticals as well and say what's in these over-the-counter medications. And then, and then there was the 1914 Harrison Act, 
which said that if you wanted to get opioids, you had to have a prescription from a physician. You could no longer get it over the counter. Hmm. And that caused a lot of, of problems because suddenly overnight, we had all these people who wanted to buy their opioids because they're dependent on them, but hmm. they no longer could get them. So there's this story of, of New York how almost overnight there were thousands of people outside of physician offices trying to get prescriptions. Oh man. Can you imagine being on shift that day? No. <laughs> and the doctors didn't like it. They didn't want to be part of this. You know, they're like, I don't, I'm not interested in this. I don't want to treat these people. I don't know what to do here. Right. Um, and they were also worried that they could get in trouble for prescribing these opioids, even though in the Harrison act, there's nothing about the doctors can't prescribe it. Mm-hmm. It just says you need a prescription, but then some doctors, started to be like the original pill mills. And so there was just one doctor out of Memphis, Tennessee, Dr. Webb, who sold thousands and thousands of prescriptions and he was all cash pay and people were coming oh, from out of state to get their prescriptions for morphine. And it went up to the Supreme Court, United States versus Webb in 1918. And the court decided that giving opioids to an addict in, the, in, in order to keep them comfortable, so maintenance treatment mm-hmm. was illegal. Mm. and not in the due course of professional practice as specified in the Harrison Act. So that soon became, because of its interpretation, giving opioids to people who were dependent upon them for maintenance therapy was a, a violation of the Harrison Act. Interesting. So that's when it became illegal. But around the same time, there was actually maintenance clinics. So there were, there were maintenance clinics in the United States, many associated with Department of Health clinics, where they were giving out morphine and giving out heroin mm-hmm. uh, to people who had failed rehabilitation. Um, so we had these maintenance clinics in our history, which I think we often forget. So the precursors to modern methadone clinics, some of them were very effective. Yeah. Huh. So, I mean, that was turn of the century, turn of last century. And then it seems like that kind of fell off until like the seventies. So what happened between, you know, having these fairly effective maintenance clinics, uh, yeah. around the time of the Harrison act to, you know, the establishment of methadone clinics uh, much, much later on, like how did, how did that just fall off people's radar? Well, once the, the web decision was made, the maintenance clinics, they started to shut down, not necessarily overnight, but within the next few years, they shut down in New York city. There were over 8,000 physicians around that time. And when web came out, less than 40 continued to prescribe narcotics. Wow. At 40 all? out of 8,000. Yeah. And then wow. the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs cited them all and died them all for trafficking and drugs. So they started to go after doctors Wow. and pharmacists as well. So the Bureau of Narcotics started to say doctors and pharmacists were violating this tax act, basically. So no doctors wanted to do maintenance therapy. Um, Narco Farm in Kentucky, they did, they once methadone reached our shores and they started to use it, they would use it just as a medicated detox from heroin. So you mm-hmm. would do your medicated detox for your first two weeks or they would taper you down with methadone and then it was, you were done. So there was mm-hmm. no maintenance therapy. Hmm. Um, until Dr. Marie Nicewonder and her husband, Dr. Vincent Dole, two physicians in New York City in the early 1960s, Dr. Nicewonder was an addiction physician. She actually worked at the farm, not mm-hmm. because she wanted to, but uh, she had joined the Navy. She graduated from medical school in the 1940s. She wanted to join the war, you know, fight Hitler, help her country, that whole thing. Yeah. So she enlisted. She thought she was going to be a field surgeon in China. She wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. That's what she wanted to do her residency in. Hmm. But they didn't have a, a uniform for women. 
So, oh, no. <laughs> so they sent her to this prison facility to be a prison doc in Kentucky. Which if, if you wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon in China, going to be a prison doc in Kentucky, I can't think of something more different. Yeah. And talk about a slap in the face. Holy yeah. cow. That's yeah. just crazy. But it turned out to be a good thing because she developed methadone maintenance. So she had some experience with methadone at the farm, but just in detox. And then when she left the farm, she initially thought, again, she didn't want to do addiction. She said, I'll be a regular psychiatrist, you know, regular quotes here. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to do marriage counseling, that kind of thing. But in her residency at Bellevue, she was the de facto expert in addiction after she worked at the farm. So every time there was some addiction question, people started going to her. Mm -hmm. She, a colleague was like, why don't you just write a paper about how to detox people so you'll never have to answer a call again so she wrote this paper it was published in the new england journal of medicine while she was a resident which is a big deal for residents. wow yeah um, that's huge and far from removing her from the problem it made her an expert uh, like so nationally yeah exactly yeah, so yeah. she started doing more addiction work but of course she didn't want to get any opiates she didn't even carry a narcotics license because she was so afraid that the bureau of narcotics which is the dea's forerunner would go after her so she didn't even want it she didn't want to have the license because she was afraid she would give it to people right there was a story of her at, at Narco one Christmas giving shots of morphine to all the inmates. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> so she's kind of been a proponent of maintenance. She had inklings, so that's what she wanted to do. And they were doing it in the UK, so she knew of that. Um, but she wasn't doing it because it was illegal. But she kept having patients die. Her patients kept dying. They kept relapsing. Oh. It was very frustrating. Even at Narco Farm, this, this institution that had millions of dollars and lots of really solid behavioral health interventions yeah. even there about 90 percent of people relapsed wow when they were released so um just another example of how abstinence treatment fails most people right. um so she became very frustrated then she met vincent dole he mm-hmm. was a renowned metabolic researcher at the rockefeller institute very prestigious he had his own lab mm-hmm. he just sort of had fallen into addiction accidentally because he had a friend who was going on sabbatical and he was looking for someone to fill in for him as chair of New York city's addiction committee. Hmm. And, um, so, so we started doing Vincent Dole realized he didn't really know anything about addiction. He went looking for the experts. He found Marie nice wonder, read her book, drug addict as patient and hmm. thought that she really was on something. So hmm. they started working together. They had several, about six men who were addicted to heroin on their, locked unit and they started giving them different ag- agonists so they gave them morphine i think they tried a number of things um yeah. sort of as maintenance treatment and they were doing this even though it was illegal because they thought they could get away with it so dr vincent dole had talked to everyone at rockefeller talked to the probably the president and his chair got support and buy-in talked to the new york physician, medical, whatever, professional society. So got all this buy-in from important people. And then they got an attorney to look at what their laws actually said. And they're like, you know, the Harrison Act doesn't actually forbid this. It just says in your course of professional practice, you know, you have to prescribe in the course of professional practice. But if this is part of a study at the Rockefeller Institute, surely that consists of professional practice. Sure. So they were kind of getting around it that way. And so they're doing maintenance therapy, the Bureau, but when the Bureau of Narcotics found out that an agent who came in, stormed up there, told them to stop, said they would arrest them, they, you know, the whole thing. Whoa. 
uh, yeah, and Vincent, but Vincent was ready for this. He thought this was going to happen. And yeah. so instead of backing down, he was like, okay, then why don't you sue me? I think that's probably the next course of action because he knew that his interpretation of the law, well, he, you know, he was confident anyway, that it was right. And yeah. so if it went to court, um, he would win and for, this could affect the whole rest of the country and treatment in the rest of the country. Nice. Yeah. So he's like, so sue me. Huh? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so sue me. Yeah. Nice. Um, the agent doesn't want to think, sort of storms off. Yeah. Uh, and then there's an interview with Dr. Vincent Dole later where he says that was pretty remarkable because that was sort of a turning point in what the Bureau of Narcotics and DEA did and mm. how they were treating maintenance therapy. So instead of just outright forbidding it, they began to switch their tech, their techniques to discreditation, to regulation, to other ways to make sure that maintenance therapy was not successful. But uh, anyway, so one night, so they're getting all these different medications for maintenance treatment. They were getting kind of frustrated. Nothing seemed to be working. Marie noticed that every few hours after a dose of heroin or a dose of morphine, people would start focusing on the clock again. They'd be ready for the next dose. It was very hard to stabilize. And then they decided one night to try methadone. The rest is history. Um, it was remarkably effective. She said there's this scene where two of their patients, they let them leave the locked ward as sort of as the final test and let them go out into the city to see what was happening after maybe a day or two of methadone. Yeah. They come back in, they're laughing, they're eating ice cream, and they're like, oh yeah, we passed them or our friends who are using, and they asked if we wanted to, but we didn't, you know, we just wanted to get some ice cream instead. Oh, wow. Yeah. Talk about a win. Holy yeah. smokes. Dr. Weiss said that she almost fell over her chair because you'd never seen anything <laughs> like this in like her last couple of decades of treating addiction. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. And so it became really supported. So they published their results. The mayor of New York City, Mayor Lindsay, really took this on as a pet project, dedicated millions of dollars to this. Hmm. Or he wanted to run for president against Nixon. So whatever he was doing in New York, sort of took on a national stage. Excellent. And Marina Vince published a paper that showed that methadone maintenance reduced crime. There was a wave of crime going on across the city. You know, this was the late 1960s, yeah. a tumultuous time. It's often likened to relatively recently, you know, to 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a tumultuous time. There was a lot of crime. So they did a study to see if, if they people on methadone of crime decreased and in this study it did i think you could we could talk a lot about this from ethical grounds and what this means and philosophically but anyway they published a study an addiction doc in dc saw it Mm -hmm. and he was running the he was the jail doc at department of corrections in dc he liked this study and he decided to put everyone in the dc jails on who was addicted onto methadone mm. and then methadone or the crime rates in DC really plummeted at this point. Mm. And president Nixon noticed um, Nixon was running on his law and order campaign. He I saw was methadone. Say, classic, yeah. classic uh, friend of the opioid user, Richard Nixon. I, right. I don't know if I like where the story is going. I mean, it's interesting. It's just, I think it's very unexpected. Uh, and this is part of, I think, why people didn't trust methadone. So you had Richard Nixon running on his law and order platform. He saw methadone as a cheap way to reduce crime mm. and thus make his voters happy. 
So he supported national methadone programs and he spent their administration spent millions of dollars on treatment and on methadone. That is an unexpected turn. Like yeah. definitely not what you would expect from uh, what we learn about Nixon's legacy in, you know, right. American public school. So and the war on yeah. drugs, you know, like Nixon's yeah. often attributed as starting the war on drugs, but he coined the term mm-hmm. in one of his speeches, but I think the war on drugs started much earlier than Nixon. You know, started early 1900s with the Harrison Act and the Federal Board of Narcotics and Anslinger. Um, Nixon just gave words to what was already happening. And then he actually supported treatment more than any administration before or since. That's how the rise of methadone happened. And it happened very quickly once the federal government got behind it. Yeah. But then it had lots of opponents. So you had so the same opponents of today. You had the not in my backyard, the NIMBYs who didn't want methadone clinics in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You had the people who said that abstinence treatment should be the only treatment and were against using an opioid for treatment. So lots of the, the main competitor to methadone at the time and the abstinence group were therapeutic communities. Synanon mm-hmm. was the most notorious, and Reveal has a really good six series podcast on that about it was basically it turned into a cult like a crazy cult in oh California. wow yeah <laughs> that sounds like a definitely an interesting listen we'll try to link that one in the yeah. show notes yeah I would definitely recommend that and so there you know the abstinence only camp was really against methadone uh black militants were against methadone because really? of Nixon's racist history sure um and he was sort of targeting the black community so they saw it as a way just to sedate people instead of making them politically conscious and aware Hmm. Um, and there's it's sort of interesting because the therapeutic communities who are really against methadone they had a lot of of clout and power they knew people in high places including new york city's medical examiner Hmm. Um, so methadone deaths the numbers were inflated so anyone who died from you know they were pedestrian crossing the street got hit by a car but they had methadone in their system that was labeled a methadone death so mm. the medical examiner started to inflate, conflate the numbers of methadone deaths, yeah. which had an impact later on. Um, those were the numbers that Congress used to regulate methadone. Interesting. To justify it. Um, yeah. The New York Times, one of the editors was married to um, one of the therapeutic community medical directors, or no, they were friends. One of, yeah, they were good friends. So they started to publish really sensational headlines about methadone like one person dying from methadone every hour. So they really inflated how dangerous methadone was. Gotcha. In order to push their own agendas and their yeah. own theories as to what would be most effective. Right. That's interesting. It's wild to see that sort of, you know, um, I guess just maybe if it wasn't even intentional collaboration, but all these different forces really like coming together to, right. um, you know, counter uh, this movement to uh, get people on to effective therapy uh, when one existed. Um, that's such an interesting story, such an interesting story. And then it keeps going. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm just <laughs> waiting with bated breath here. Oh, I can't wait to hear more. He's going, he's going. And so then you got this uproar, this anti-methadone uproar, mm-hmm. and some people are even trying to shut it down entirely. Right. Really? Um, yeah. And so Nixon's drug czar, the first drug czar was Dr. Jerome Jaffe, this young addiction doc out of Chicago, who was a methadone doc in Chicago before coming to drug czar. Mm-hmm. Um, he was really young. Like it's interesting because lots of Nixon's advisors were actually quite 
you know, in their late twenties, early thirties. Really? Interesting. Yeah. And, um, so Jerome Jackie was a big proponent of methadone. Um, he went to these congressional hearings about it mm-hmm. and there were people saying how dangerous it was. It used to be ended all this stuff. So Jaffe thought that we had to have some regulation or else the whole thing would be outlawed entirely. Mm-hmm. He was like, um, you know, at some point, if you make it too easy to get some toddlers got to go into it, they're going to overdose. It's going to be a headline and it's going to be completely outlawed. Right. Um, and we can't let that happen if we want to help people. So sort of um, like preemptively compromising in order to yes. uh, ensure that at least some good happened. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So they okay. started because before this time, anyone could give out methadone. Any doctor could give it out from any clinic. And that was actually Marie Neiswender's vision for methadone. She thought it was so simple. Mm-hmm. And it is um, that any doctor should, should and can do this. Nice. She really was against the methadone clinics. Mm-hmm. And um, but then the regulation comes along and says it has to be at these federally approved methadone clinics. They have to have this kind of criteria. You have to have counseling. You have to have jobs. To, you have to have this is the amount of dosing you can have. I mean, it's it's very regulated. It makes it very difficult to give methadone. Yeah. So Jaffe said this was the lesser of, of evils to have some regulation. And he also thought that this would be revised at some point once we got more data, once we realized methadone was safer. Um, in 1995, that data came, the Institute of Medicine published a report about methadone and they said its dangers had been way overblown. It was a very safe medication. And in fact, it is way too difficult to access because of these regulations and we need, it's very effective. We need to get it out there. So, so, after, re- so after that, everything, you know, just uh, went to normal and uh, Marie's vision became right. reality, right? No, right, right. No? That's exactly right. Nothing oh. happened. So the 1995 Nothing. report came out, hmm. nothing really happened. Um, the FDA, NIDA, SAMHSA, the VEA, the DEA, they all got together to try to revise these methadone regulations. And they kind of revised them, but not that much in 2001. Mm. And the biggest resistance to change actually came from the DEA and the already licensed methadone providers. Mm. So uh, they were and these are the regular, back. Yeah, mm. I think because this is how they maybe it guarantees them the market or this is how they run it. They don't want to change it. I don't know. I don't know why. Or they would support this. Um, mm. I don't want to be too cynical about their intentions, but <laughs> fair, fair. I think we can read between the lines on that one. Yeah, yeah. right. And um, you know, I gave this is part of a talk at American Society of Addiction Medicine back in April, and someone actually stood up and he said, "Hey, I was one of those people who did this revision, mm-hmm. um, and we actually we you know we helped a lot of people with our revisions." Well, hey, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> But, sure. but these regs, like, you know, they're the ones that talk about take-home burdens and clinic attendance. You know, if you miss so many days, your dose gets knocked back to a sub-therapeutic level. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to get take-homes. So people have to go every single day to the methadone clinic. You have to do random drug screens. It, it doesn't feel like a clinic. You know, it feels like um, some sort of carceral environment. Definitely, especially with a really clinic. limited hours too, right? Like yeah. most methadone clinics are only open for a few hours in the morning. Right, right, like four to 11 in the morning. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Kodak and CM, Kodak <clears> is 24 <throat> seven. I think CMS has expanded hours too, but most places it's very limited hours. Half of America doesn't even have access to a methadone clinic. Sure. Yeah. If you're living in a rural area, like how the heck right. are you going to get to a clinic every day between four and 11 AM? Like, right. Yeah. And then- Brutal. I think most people today don't really think much about methadone because of buprenorphine. So buprenorphine is the sort of the, it, 
it girl and addiction. <laughs> Fair. Um, so then let's talk a little bit about Bupe. Like how, <laughs> where did it come from and why is it taking the world by storm? Yes. Yeah. So it was developed in the sixties mm-hmm. um, as just an analgesic, but it didn't really sell. And then one of the narcotic farm docs in the seventies realized it could be a safer medication for opioid use disorder treatment. But again, no one really paid it much mind. And then in the 1990s, that's when white Americans started to get addicted to opioids from, from prescriptions, you know, from physician prescriptions, oxycontin, oxycodone, pills. And so this new population started to become dependent and misuse opioids, addicted. And so the face of addiction partially changed. So you have all these white addicts who are seen as victims because it's their doctors who got them hooked mm. and you know bad marketing unethical marketing which the public response to this phase of addiction was a lot different than what the public did when people using heroin or at least on the news people using heroin were black and brown in urban environments so the response was different yeah. it was seen as these people are more deserving of a medical response to addiction instead of having to go to this carceral clinic every single day um, so instead of methadone, we're going to offer them this safer medication called Suboxone. You can get it from your doctor. Mm-hmm. And they were actually the advertising for Suboxone really played this up too. So the ads really? would show these rural or suburban white people who are addicted after a football injury, after whatever. Um, and so that's who Suboxone really targeted. Yeah. And it is it is safer. Um, there are definite benefits to suboxone or buprenorphine over methadone, but methadone has benefits as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's like these two distinct treatment modalities for two distinct populations. Yeah. That's wild. Do you feel like that distinction persists today? And do you see like more people who got, you know, uh, do you see more, I guess, what does the demographic like breakdown look like today? Is it, is it, you know, pretty I don't know the numbers exactly. I think that's changing. You know, I think with, I think that's changing, but um, I still think that history is relevant for just shaping how we see Suboxone versus how we see methadone. Yeah. Um, I have lots of colleagues in the emergency department, not here, but other places where I've worked who are sort of anti-methadone and just don't see it as the right treatment. And I think part of that is comes from the stigma around methadone and who it's historically used been given to. Um, so I think it's, a, I think the stigma around methadone partially comes from this history that we talked about today and the yeah. lack, the, the less stigma around bupe comes from its own history too. That definitely scans, right? It, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I've noticed that as well, um, sort of a, a reluctance towards methadone. And I, I always just assumed it was because of the, the complicated um, laws surrounding its use, but buprenorphine buprenorphine has its own complexities, right? But people seem to be more open to hearing about it. And I never thought about it through that, through that lens, but that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's very interesting. I think it's multifaceted, just like you mentioned, there are real pharmacologic reasons why bup might be better for some people, but there's also reasons like fentanyl, my methadone might be better. Yeah. So what are, what are some of those reasons? And like, um, so, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about how methadone and, and bup are both used, you know, pretty, pretty widely today. And, and, you know, are, are certainly, you know, one pretty big pillar, I would say of, 
um, you know, finding a solution to the opioid epidemic or, or helping people um, who have uh, issues with opioid use disorder. So like, where, where do you see these fitting in? And like, when, when would you reach for one versus the other? And, and what are some resources that people can use if they want to learn more about, you know, uh, sure. how to safely uh, start someone on uh, one of these medications? In my own practice, I usually ask patients if they have a preference because lots of people do. They nice. want bup or methadone, they know it already, either because yeah. they've tried it on the street or because they've talked to people about it. So people usually have a, a good feeling for which one they want. So I just nice. ask them. Um, for the rare person who's never tried one of these, uh, then that I go into a little more detail. And you know, we work in an urban environment where we have methadone access. So mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about that. If I were somewhere rural where I didn't have methadone, well, I would probably just go straight to boop. But, but here I ask people, um, some people like going every day to the methadone clinic. They feel like it gives them some structure and some accountability and their recovery. So some people like that. Uh, other people obviously don't. Hopefully my, my dream is that one day methadone will be a lot easier to have take-homes with. So you don't have to go every day. And that's something I think as healthcare providers, we could advocate for this, you know, the science backs this up. The Institute of Medicine report backs this up. It doesn't need to be directly administered treatment every single day. So yeah. I think if you ignore that and just looked at the pharmacology methadone versus bup, which we can't really do now, right? Like now we have to see it in the structure that it exists in. Sure, so if we could sure. just look at it pharmacologically, um, Bup has less drug interactions, so that's nice. It may not make people feel, people feel differently on the two medications. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Bup is safer. It's harder to have an overdose on just bup. Mm -hmm. So I think those are all pros for bup. As far as the methadone camp, you don't have to be in withdrawal to start it, which lots of people have traumatic experiences with withdrawal and some people do not want to go through that again. So they don't have to with methadone. Nice. Um, some people want to keep using occasionally and that's a little bit easier to do on methadone. Mm -hmm. And it's not my job as a doctor to tell people if they can't do that, how is, how is that any different than me having a drink on the weekend or after work? Um, sure, sure. It's all just how we, we've stigmatized and perceive different substances across time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, to fully kick someone out of who's, who's trying to recover and, and fully kick them out of recovery or, or say like, oh no, you, you know, you failed, you relapsed, uh, you're, you're out, you're on your own. You got to figure this out. Or, you know, somebody who just wants to occasionally use when they feel like using like to again, you know, completely take them off of uh, the medication that you're using to treat the disorder because they you know, aren't doing exactly what you want them to do is, is a little bit crazy and definitely not aligned with like, the modern not approach. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not, <laughs> not, it's not aligned with like the modern approach of harm reduction, right? No. Like, you know, you're not doing that person any favors by doing that. You're not going to no. get to where no. you, they want to be. So yeah, no, it totally um, makes sense. And then I think methadone also is going to have more of a role with fentanyl. So most mm. of our studies that we have about opioids and about MAT are pre-fentanyl era. Mm -hmm. um, so which is a little frustrating that our data takes so long to catch up with what's actually happening. But I think that methadone is easier for people who are coming off of fentanyl and fentanyl now is the primary opioid of choice for most people. Yeah. Um, it's the withdrawal, I think is just worse with fentanyl. It happens sooner. And then there's this depth. We think it's a depot effect. Mm. So 
precipitate withdrawal happens for longer times than it should uh, with, with other opioids. Yeah. So yeah. going from fentanyl to bupe can be difficult. It's not with everybody though, which is interesting, but mm. for a good chunk of people, and again, I don't have the data because the data doesn't exist yet. For a good chunk of people, they don't transition well to bupe. It continues to cause precipitate withdrawal. And I've had, I had one patient who even for like a whole week when he was taking bupe, every time he took it, he'd feel precipitate withdrawal again. Wow. Um, but he's sort of an exception. I don't think they're, it's quite that bad, but sure, sure. But that's most people, but that, that's wild. I mean, yeah. You know, whether it's a depoing effect and just like leaching from adipose tissue right. or yeah. Huh. That's what they think. And then some people are using fentanyl every hour. And wow. so how can you wait 12 hours to start your bupe if you're using it every hour? So right, right. there are microdosing protocols for bupe induction, but I think that gets kind of complex for your average community provider. Um, mm. But those do exist. So bupe is still possible with fentanyl. But I also have patients who use fentanyl who just say, you know, the bupe doesn't cover me anymore. The methadone does. Mm. Um, the counter argument to that is you should just use a higher dose of bupe. You should go above 24 milligrams a day. You could do 32 milligrams a day, for example, but right. most insurance companies don't cover that. Gotcha. And um, it's not FDA approved for over 24 milligrams a day. Interesting. So that's as much as uh, insurance companies will cover. Do you, is there a ceiling effect with bupe given its partial agonist activity or, or do you continue to see like a pretty linear dose response? There's a ceiling effect. But there's also functional MRI studies that show if you, from 24 to 32 milligrams, there are more receptors that are affected. Hmm. So I don't think the ceiling is there necessarily. Gotcha. But yeah, there is a ceiling. I had one patient who um, took his whole week's worth of Suboxone because he the first dose went into precipitate withdrawal. So then he just took the whole week's worth. Just to try um, to get get out it, of withdrawal. Eventually that works. Yeah. Okay. But that's a lot of Suboxone. <laughs> that is a lot of Suboxone. And uh he probably ran like probably ran out the first day and right, did, yeah. Got in trouble. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah. That's wild. Yeah. A lot of a lot of opportunity for research in that area. Uh yes. ethically performed research. Uh, yes, like yes the... <laughs> exactly. Trauma-informed research. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and, and sharing your expertise. I, I definitely learned some things and uh, hopefully the, the listeners did as well. Um, always a pleasure to have you on and, and, you know, learn from your awesome, awesome depth of uh, knowledge. So thank you for sharing. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me.